the process of dressing up a movie to make it a smash success can take many twists and turns. A different wig, a different casting choice, a different ending, or even a different concept altogether are just some of the many paths not taken of the 1993 Robin Williams fan favorite, Mrs. Doubtfire. A film that had a mixed reception upon its release has blossomed into an all-time comedy classic by avoiding massive wardrobe malfunctions along the way. Largely based on the award-winning English novel Alias Madame Doubtfire by Anne Fine, the avenue for this adaptation began in a very unexpected place. Screenwriters Randy Mayhem Singer and Leslie Dixon originally developed this script as a feature film installment of the Tim Allen sitcom Home Improvement. <laughs> That's right, you heard me right. This movie installment of the 90s sitcom would see Tim and Jill amidst a messy divorce where Mr. Taylor would be donning the Doubtfire persona to see his three boys. Obviously, that didn't quite pan out as Alan rejected the project. However, feeling the potential of the script was too good, the producers decided to make Mrs. Doubtfire its own thing. Home Alone director Christopher Columbus came on to direct the film, and the search for the cast was on. The most important role of the cast was Daniel Hilliard, or Mrs. Eubanginia Doubtfire, since the film hinged on this character's performance. The novel's author, Anne Fine's first choice was Warren Beatty, as a fun subversion of his womanizing persona. And Tim Allen was once again offered the role, but again, turned it down. Once Columbus saw Robert Williams in the role, he knew there could be no one else. And this would go on to become one of Williams's most iconic roles. A young Blake Lively was also almost cast as the youngest Hilliard, Natty, but tanked her final in-person audition with Robin Williams for being too nervous. So the part went to newcomer Mara Wilson instead. Williams would turn out to be the perfect fit for the role as his gift for genuine sentimentality and unparalleled mastery of comedy is what makes the film so memorable. Production even had to film on two to three cameras at a time to ensure that they could always capture the rest of the cast's genuine reactions to Williams' improvisations, of which they were many. With a highlight here and a little contour there, Mrs. Doubtfire hit theaters in November of 1993. And while the critical response was mixed, the film was a massive commercial success, grossing over $441 million worldwide on a $25 million budget, coming in as the second highest grossing film of that year, second only to Jurassic Park. Although reviews were mixed at the time, Mrs. Doubtfire has become a generational defining comedy classic over the years since its release. And even with overall mixed reviews, credit was given where credit was absolutely due as Mrs. Doubtfire won the Oscar for Best Makeup in 1994 by making that dude look like a lady. The makeup took between three to four hours to apply and about one hour to remove and consisted of eight to 11 foam latex pieces as well as several layers of makeup. Much like the titular character took many attempts to sculpt in the film, the film itself took many, many tries and attempts and time to take shape, but ultimately it convincingly hit a very high mark it set for itself. So today, we're putting on our best dress and strutting our stuff as we ask the question, Mrs. Doubtfire, what's it about? I'm Ricardo Boyd Diaz. I'm Seth Crow. I'm Megan Branham. And this is the What's About Film Podcast, a show where we try to glean the meaning of it all through the media we consume, holding a mirror up to ourselves and seeing how it reflects in our own lives. Megan and Seth, how you doing today? Good. How are you guys? I'm doing pretty good. How you doing, Seth? I'm good. I'm tired, but I'm yeah. good. Yeah. yeah so we were talking before we started recording. Seth had a great 
nice trip to Chicago. Saw some old friends, familiar faces. So got hit, got hit by a bus. Uh, a metaphorical bus. <laughs> a, met, a metaphorical bus. Yeah. I've almost been hit by a real bus, yeah. and that's not funny. <laughs> uh, there's a word in uh, Japanese. I'm I'm trying to remember it. It's like anka or something like that. But basically, what it what it is is like a feast where you eat and drink to the point of making yourself sick. The word and... you're looking for is buffet. <laughs> <laughs> That's the French word. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that that was kind of what this weekend was. Was just like we just went really hard the whole time we were there, and it was a blast. But I am. I'm not hungover today, but I am. Uh, I am physically tired from the from the trip. That makes sense. Yeah. You seem like you had a really fun week. I ha- I've had an up a, a roller coaster of a week. So since we last recorded, found out that my car is basically totaled. Oh. Um, the the engine starting to fail and stuff like that. So I have right now looking into getting a new car before this one blows up. <laughs> um, and then. Uh, I got cast in a commercial. Yeah, this weekend. So two days, eight hundred bucks. Nice. Yeah. So that was exciting. So it's been it's been an up and down. Oh, also, uh, my roommate and I uh, are in the midst of uh, shooting a short film. So we shot all day Sunday, and then we're going back and we're shooting all day this coming Sunday uh, to finish that up. So it's been a wild week for for this guy, for sure. Sounds uh-huh. sounds productive. Yeah. That's all. Look, that's all I got. <laughs> I don't have anybody to love me. So therefore, oh, throw myself in the work. There's a, there's thousands of our fans that, that are just. <laughs> <laughs> thousands of our fans. Nora? Yes, that's right. Nora I forget. Hi, Nora. Here. Yes, thousands of our fans. Thank you out there for showing me so much love. But I know I got two people that love me right here. Yes, uh, it's true. <laughs> We're three. I forgot Nora. I'm sorry. Oh, and you got Annabelle. Annabelle, right? that's true. We're a family. Speaking of we family, <laughs> without that forced segue, <laughs> we are talking about Mrs. Doubtfire today. So, Seth, you chose Mrs. Doubtfire. Why'd you pick Mrs. Doubtfire? Well, I think it's a, a several tiered choice. First of all, I live in Tennessee, and mm. drag has just been basically made illegal here. So I wanted to do a movie that had drag in it. Um, and I feel like this is the most mainstream film that has drag in it. And also, I love Robin Williams. Robin Williams is maybe, I would say, top three most influential actors in my life. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and I hadn't seen this movie in a, in a long time. So it was good to revisit it. Um, it was very cool to watch it uh, as an adult because I hadn't seen it since I was like a teenager, probably. Really? It's been that long since you've yeah. seen it. I watch it a lot. This is one of those movies from my childhood that I revisit frequently. Um, yeah. There's no way. I, I, look, I watched this movie. like, there's no way Ricky wasn't majorly influenced. Dude, I, I was going to talk about that later, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Uh, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I, I've watched this movie since I was a kid. Um, I've seen it, I don't know, a million times. Definitely um, 
I almost know. I was almost mouthing along with the movie as it went. That's how well I know it. I was like basically reciting the movie as it happened. <laughs> um, it's one of my favorite movies, and I, I can't wait to discuss more about like the themes and things like that. But it's a movie that, again, I've seen. I don't know how many times, at least a hundred. Um, but yeah, uh, Megan, what's your history with uh, Mrs. Doubtfire? Um, I I also hadn't seen it in a really long time. I think maybe since I was. Oh God. I remember it was on ABC family a lot. So I'm sure I saw it on TV um, uh, when I was like in high school or something. But I think the last time I sat down and watched it in full, I was probably in like daycare when I was a kid. because They would play it a lot. Um, I really liked it. Uh, I loved it then. I thought it was a good time. Now I love, I also love Robin Williams. Like it's hard to watch anything with him and not just be like, just miss him a lot. Um, and yeah, hadn't seen it in a while. It was interesting. Yes, I, I, for me, uh, Robin Williams. That that's one of the most devastating losses that I, I can remember experiencing, as far as like a loss of a, a celebrity or an actor or something like that. That one was, yeah, it, it was so shocking too. Obviously, um. But I, I I remember that one very clearly, and, and and it being super devastating to me because I am, as Seth kind of alluded to, I've watched this movie and been a Robin Williams fan my entire like since I was like able to acknowledge that that's the same person and and, and recognize that like oh that guy is that guy is that guy is that guy yeah um, and re- understand what actors are <laughs> yeah uh, I've been a fan of him and been influenced by by his persona. Um, but also the person that he, everybody, everybody reports him to have been the wonderful person that, that he was. Um, so yeah, this, this movie for me is, is super influential, obviously. Um, and as Seth actually was kind of getting to it, like, I think the way that I, if somebody were to watch this movie and then come to one of my classes at the, where I work with the kids, I think they would be like, oh, that is super, super similar the way you do it and the way that, that Mrs. Doubtfire kind of did it too. Like the, the, the even the energy is very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, didn't even realize until I watched it again. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. I'm, I act like very similar to that when I'm working with kids. Um, but uh, yeah. So for anybody out there who, like apparently my two co-hosts here have not seen this movie in quite some time. Uh, here's just a little reminder of what this movie is. Uh, this is the basic premise and plot of Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, I would encourage you to go and watch it before you listen to the rest of this podcast. Um, but if you decide not to, cause you've seen it before, that's okay too. So this is just a little reminder of the premise and plot of Mrs. Doubtfire. Amidst a heartbreaking divorce, voice actor Daniel Hilliard dons the persona of a six-year-old English woman to pose as a nanny in a desperate ploy to be in his children's life every day. And that's basically it. Um, He, you know, Robin Williams' character just puts on this costume and pretends to be somebody else so that he he can be with his kids every day. This movie, at the time, again, uh, critically received mixed reviews, but commercially was extremely successful. Um, 
in recent years, a lot of the behavior of the Daniel Hilliard character has been called rightly into question. Um, in a real life scenario, he's a psycho. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a real hard one to talk about. It's going to be a bit of a minefield, I think. <laughs> I think I, off. I think off the bat here, we can all we can all say this. So we, I think we can then move on from this type, unless we really, really want to bring it up again. But I think we all can acknowledge that this in this type of behavior in real life is really, really messed up. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> but the complexity, the further complexity here is drag itself is not messed up. No. So like, so like it's a very, no, you, we have to separate. Yeah. It's not him being in drag. And I think this movie actually does a really great job of like, not great job. This movie does some stuff in like, it was made in 93 and like there were some like pro LGBTQIA plus elements to this movie. Like with his brother being, being gay and being in a, 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 a relationship with a man. Honey. Yeah. Harvey, Harvey Feinstein. Oh my God. I love his voice. Be careful with Um, this one. She's old. (laughs) <laughs> honey i'm so happy <laughs> match make a match make a make me a match i love it uh um but you know and then like even that there's like that joke that like uh, uh you know does your girlfriend have a girlfriend and and robin goes hey it's the 90s <laughs> yeah. um so i think even then like there was some like normalization of that community in this movie which and e- even with the bus driver like seeing that uh, Miss Doubtfire had like really hairy legs, and he was like, "Look, that's okay, you know. I don't, you know, doesn't bother me, kind of thing." Um, I don't know. Uh, where this movie, I think, has some pitfalls in that area. I also think it was genuinely trying to be like, "This is normal and it's fine." Um, so I think we have to separate the cross-dressing part of this movie as the like not the inappropriate part. The inappropriate part is <laughs> is a father going against the courts and like secretly infiltrating his, his, his wife's life to be with his kids and not, we've We've all done that. (laughs) It's, it's the deception. It's the deception and the illegal actions that, that are problematic. I'm, I'm really enjoying watching Megan's face. Like, like, like change as we continue talking about this. Like I can see like, what's that? (laughs) There's a lot. My cat was pulling something off of oh. my table and then wanted out. And then also, also what we're talking yes, about. Yes, yes. I can see you calculating your your moral stances. Well, I, I was, would also, her, her cat was checking her Instagram. <laughs> I would also like to, I think, address at the beginning that obviously, like his behavior in terms of like infiltrating his wife and family's life without their permission or knowledge. You know, not not normal. Right. Um, not okay. Not the normal. Dress- not healthy. Not okay. Right. Right. The the part of him dressing up as a woman. Whatever. Do whatever you want. There were definitely some moments in this movie, and while I think it was like super um, for its time, totally like like you're saying, Ricky, I agree with you. But there are definitely moments where I was like, oh, no, it does have some of those moments. That's what I, I think. As like, it's not. <laughs> it's not a, a perfect example in that way. I think there, like I said, there are some elements that were like trying to normalize that. But there yeah. are definitely some outdated jokes. Yeah. And, and there's some moments that didn't age super well. No, that's very fair. Um, and and so what I think, 
if we can, I mean, if we really want to bring it up more we, we, and explore that more, we absolutely can. They don't want to limit our conversation. I think we, I think something that we have to do is we have to, like we did with rom-coms, we have to separate a little bit of reality from this and, and look at it as almost like a fantasy in, in a certain way. Um, in that the rules of the world allow yeah. this to be okay. It's a comedy. Mm. Right. It's, it needs an absurd comedian. Like, mm. Yeah. Like and 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 I think what helps is that we we get to see Daniel. Like we this movie's from Daniel's perspective, right? And so we get to see his intentions and we get to see kind of where the motivation is. And yes, again, not the healthiest of choices, is fully motivated in a overwhelming love and need need to be with his children and like again in our world in the reality never his behavior is never acceptable like this this like you said infiltrating his family's lives without their consent and deceiving them never okay never okay but in the context of this movie i think i hope we can go acknowledge that and move through and talk about the movie as you know in it, in contained in itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> I I mean I I agree that it it is from the lens of reality a psychotic break. We are watching a man have a psychotic break, but through the lens of comedy, you can't you got to have some weird circumstances for it to mm-hmm. to work. You know, like, like a man, like a man can't talk to animals either, but there's a whole movie about a guy who can talk to animals. If you took it seriously, you'd be like, this guy's hallucinating the fact that he can talk to animals, you know? So mm-hmm. it's like, it's a, movie. it's a movie. Yeah. And like, we watch movies to put ourselves in circumstances we wouldn't be in in real life. So like, this mm-hmm. is, this just happens to be like pretty grounded in reality, mm-hmm. but it's like a dimension over, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, it's like one dimension, like it's like if Robin Williams had never gotten discovered mm-hmm. and he married a rich woman, you know? <laughs> an architect. And like, yeah. But t- yeah. And, uh, I, 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 I thought this movie actually like, yeah, there's some problematic shit in it, but I, I'm very, I'm very, I was very impressed with a lot of, the grounded justifications in the film like i i even though it's crazy you can still buy it you know what i mean like you could buy that this is happening and even the consequences of what happens i i actually can agree with that because i think the movie itself is like this is not appropriate yeah. Like, you know, the guy's like, we're going to give you, you're, you're only going to get supervised visit with your kids. You're going to have to have a psych evaluation. And like, he's like potential criminal charges. So like, even the movie itself was like, this behavior is not okay. Like you can't do this kind of stuff. We're not going to just like let you get away with it. Sure. Mm-hmm. He, he ends up getting away with it, quote unquote, but it's really only because of the grace of his ex-wife. Mm-hmm. That yeah. he does, because otherwise the courts weren't going to let him off. Right. Um, it's only because she showed empathy and mercy that that he has a life at this point after the movie ends. Yeah. Um, 
I also think, um, because it is, there's also a difference between like early film and like culture, pop culture, where men dressed up as women and it was like for the bit, like some like it hot did it too. We're like, Mm. yes, it's drag technically, but it's not drag. Like I feel as far as I understand it and like appreciate it drag is in in real life when people do it like either like a form of self-expression or like you know just like a, a thing they enjoy doing whereas in these movies like going all the way back to some like it hot and i'm sure before that it's like out of it's a forced necessity yeah, it's a forced uh, circumstance i will yeah. i'll buck up against this slightly and i think i i, I spent because this movie i think is i think this is a, a really good pick because um to your horn <laughs> Well, no, I'm I'm saying like I think that you're right that drag is a form of self-expression, but this is I think literally where the two lines meet, right? Like, and I think we'll get more into that um, later in the conversation, but I don't think this is this movie is about it just being a bit. Like, I think. I, I, I think that this character needed this feminine persona to find th- growth in himself. And, and so yeah. like, and so like, that's where this comp- conversation gets, this is, this is why I think this is a scary one uh, <laughs> because what we're talking about here is um, be like, it's beyond just acting. It's about, drag is a complex conversation for a straight guy to have. Um, I've done drag. Um, and, but I, I respect and appreciate it. Um, and it, and like, it's even, it is very, very tangential to clowning, which is, um, I, I get nervous to say that, but it's a very, very similar art form. It's, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So like, and clowning is definitely a form of self-expression. So it's, it's, it's hard. It, this is, like I said, it's going to be, this is a tricky one, a tricky one. Yeah. I guess when I'm saying that, um, there were just a couple moments where, where Mrs. Outfire, or I guess like when Daniel is even when like, um, He's dressed as Mrs. Doubtfire. He's like being Daniel when he's like talking to his kids. And he very explicitly is like, no, I don't enjoy doing this. Like, this is not right. Like, I'm not having a good time. And that's when I was like, well, then it's not like the same as like, you know what I mean? So I think that's what I'm talking about. Those like explicit moments where he was like, I'm not doing this because like I'm like expressing myself. I'm doing it because I have to to be close to you. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I meant by that. I, I and we can get into this a little bit. I would pu- I would push back a little bit on that. I think. Oh, sorry, it's our producer. Our producer's like, this is, a, this is a tricky one. This one's hairy. <laughs> um, um, so what I would say is, I think he might be in a little bit of denial when he says that, hmm. because I think he does enjoy being Mrs. Doubtfire in some parts. Yeah, like I'm sure it's fun very frustrating and like you know he even like the first couple of days he's mrs doubtfire he's like he hasn't figured out the body yet you know he's having lots of mistakes and, and missteps and talking about how much heels suck 
Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm sure it's not comfortable. Mm-hmm. But I think there are elements of being Mrs. Doubtfire that he does like to the point where yeah. he creates a whole show around her. Yeah. A drag show for kids. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, and when he's in, and, and, and I think Miranda says this really well, is he, he's like, when you are Mrs. Doubtfire, something comes out of you that is wonderful. Like this right. wonderful part of you comes out when you're being her. Yeah. Like, and that yeah. part, that part is always in him. But like, I think when he starts to realize that thing, I think he does. I think he's in a bit of denial. That's all I'm saying. I think he yeah. does like parts of being Mrs. Doubtfire. But also, it's he's in a full bodysuit. He's wearing this latex mask. He's wearing high heel. I'm sure it's not comfortable. Right. Um, but I do also. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. But no. Yeah, I was just gonna reiterate. But I, I think he does like it. Yeah, I agree. I do also wonder how much of the um, making that movie in the '90s, how much they had to worry about. Like they kind of made it so that people who don't understand or didn't understand could watch it and be like, look how ridiculous this is. Like this guy doesn't want to be doing this. This is like, so they could watch a movie about essentially a drag performer and not necessarily align with like the political ideological, ideological, like whatever mm-hmm. that traditionally, but also they made it so that if you want to read it as that, which I think is the, I like, like that reading set in San Francisco. Yeah. Like I think they did, they kind of had to do it in a way where they towed the line. Yeah. Because then it has this, like, it has this broad appeal, you know, like my grandpa likes this movie. My grandpa would not go to a drag show. Mm. I've tried to get him to one. Well, Um, (laughs) yeah. I mean, that's such a good point. And I think that's so, so true. Um, And I think that, that, that kind of speaks to, if I can go into a little bit of like history, a little bit of like drag in the United States, as far as like in film, like there was a a a a, a U.S. military produced film, uh, um, uh, I believe it was during World War II. I can't remember, but I think so. That was produced by the military for like USO shows, like to show to the troops while they're like overseas and stuff like that. Um, and it featured all soldiers. You know, all people in the military in all the roles. So there's mostly men, and they and a ton of them were wearing drag. Mm. And even Ronald Reagan was the lead character, and he was in drag the whole time. Huh. Wow. And so, like, drag as a form of expression, as a form of entertainment, as a form of, you know, has been used by <laughs> by both sides of the political spectrum. But you're like you said, they have to justify it in a way that that is okay to them, or else or else they don't agree with it. I could never. Yeah. It has to be justified. It has well, to mean, be on their terms. Shakespeare, right? Like, yeah. We're running really historical. Like all of Shakespeare, half was drag. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the the original Shakespeare companies were all men, which yeah. it's, it was his own problem. But they were doing drag. You know, so. I'm just, it's and a, then you get, yeah. like the conversation about like, it's not necessarily like drag performance isn't always like associated with like gender identity. Sometimes it's just, you know, men who do drag identify as, you know, whatever their sexuality is men outside of that. And some don't, and some do. So like, it doesn't, um, 
it, I don't know. I think like that level of fun and like if you divorce the like gender identity from it, I think that's honestly probably how they like just had fun with it even back then when things were a little bit more. I think that's a good point. I think when people think about drag and think about people who do drag, they have a very specific person in mind, right? Mm-hmm. A type of person who does drag, who dresses in drag. I've done drag. The first – like the first uh, – I did a um, – a Spanish, uh, when I was in high school, I was in advanced Spanish and we did like a, a project where like we had to, we were put into groups and we were randomly assigned a, a Latino or Latina famous person. And one of us had to pretend to be that person. The other person had to interview them. Um, and we were supposed to like, you know, dress up and stuff like that. And, um, me and my partner, who is this blonde woman, uh, got Cameron Diaz and she, she's yeah, she's part Cuban. Her dad's Cuban. Everyone yeah. forgets cause she's blonde hair, blue eyes, but she's yeah. Cuban. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, uh, obviously like you'd think that the blonde haired blue eyed student would be Cameron Diaz, but she just like, I can't do the performance part. Like I can't do it. And mm-hmm. so I was like, so you're going to make me be Cameron Diaz. She's like, yeah. I was like, all right, then I'm going to go for it. So I went and like, even I was like a senior in high school, I went and bought a dress that would fit me. I got a wig and I did, I went, came to class as Cameron Diaz uh, and did, and did it. And was that, high school like chill about that? Were they yeah, like, actually it's still on my Facebook. Like my whole class <laughs> dug it. Everybody thought it was really great and funny and entertaining. Cause it should be. Cause it's this, like, I don't know. It's like that freedom to explore I mean, gender identity and, mm-hmm. and just like the confines we put ourselves in. And I, yeah, I'm glad that your high school was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Cause nobody, nobody gave me any, nobody put up a fuss at least to my face. Yeah. Um, Obviously you're doing it for a project. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. we're like, this is part of who I am, but mm-hmm. it could have been. But um, you know, That's not even the first time I've done. I mean, that's not even the last time I've done drag tons of times since then. So. I think the, I think the reason is, shifted is you used to and i think this is kind of what you're arguing megan about this movie which i see your argument used to be a bit drag used to be yeah yeah drag used to be drag the culture around it was oh you're not you're not a woman this is funny right and and now it's now that people are coming out as trans like it it's I think made the conversation really scary for a lot of people, and now it makes them uncomfortable, you know, because it's like it's it's not about oh it's not about the joke anymore, which is what you were saying this movie was doing. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not about the joke anymore. It's about oh there's something in you that could be feminine. <laughs> right. And sometimes, like I said, sometimes it is that, and then sometimes like straight men are like for fun regularly participate in drag shows and it's like really complicated so i mean it's not that complicated but for some people in this conversation it's like really hard to wrap their mind around like it both being like a fun bit and also like a way to explore those parts yes. of it. it's just it's more so yeah. i'll go ahead and ask the question then i was just just gonna ask you to ask the question megan branham oh god Mrs. Wait, wait, what's her name? F. F. Euphigenia. Euphigenia Doubtfire. That name is beautiful. Uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, 
What's it about? I'm going to take a little bit of a left turn here because I think, well, I guess not, not completely a left turn. I think it's about um, how family, familial love in every form and every shape and size can be, um, is beautiful and valid and the things we will do to keep our families close to us and keep them together. And I say that because I think, correct me if I'm, am, am I the only child of divorce here? Yeah. Ooh, okay. See? Represent. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I definitely viewed it like I, the, you know, drag conversation is definitely part of it, probably the main part, but I was watching it like, oh, that's a nice rumination on how divorce isn't, you know, you're not a lesser family because of it. That is a really, really important part of this movie. So one of the things I alluded to in the history of this movie was a different ending. So mm-hmm. originally the original uh, ending of the script was the one that is in the movie. However, mm-hmm. the while making the film and while developing it, the studio was like, this is kind of a bummer. Um, so uh, they they asked the writers to write a a happy ending where Miranda and Daniel get back together, right? Um, and so the original writers were like, no, <laughs> no, that does not work. Yeah. Um, so they left the project. They brought in somebody else to to rewrite the ending. Got it read it and was like, no, this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. This doesn't work. Them yeah. ending up together like like happily ever after like does not work. You're right. And yeah. so and so they re- reinstated the original ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're right, like this movie challenges the traditional nuclear family unit idea concept. Mm-hmm. And in the whole like monologue at the end is like it really emphasizes this beautiful thing of like you're, like you said, you're not less of a family and there's no less love mm-hmm. just because your family is not traditional. Yeah. And and I wish – again, this was 93, so um, I, I don't know if they would have said this. But like when, when uh, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire is listening, like some families have, have a mommy and a daddy. Some families only have one daddy. Some families only, some families only have one mommy. And it like, goes through all these different things, but never says some families have two daddies. Some families yeah. have two mommies. Yeah. And I wish it would have, but I, yeah. I understand that it was 93. I misheard. I misheard when I was watching it. I was like, I, I was like writing it in my head as he was saying it. Hmm. Like, I was like, oh, he's going to say two, mo- two mommies. I don't think it was legal. Marriage was legal at that time. It, it wasn't. But I, I'm just saying, like, it makes sense. It's sorry. Uh, it's wrong. It's wrong that it's not there, especially right. yeah. for San Francisco. Well, also, right. especially because his brother. Yeah. <laughs> is with a man. Yeah. yeah. Aunt Jack. And so, Aunt Jack. Uncle yeah. Frank and Aunt Jack. Yeah. Um, and so. Again, I know it was 93. Gay marriage was not legal at that time here in the United States. So, But, like, I think in spirit that is there, that idea yeah. is there, but they couldn't say it at that time maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're you're right. It's like a, a, a complete deconstruction of what a family is supposed to look like. And, mm-hmm. like, instead of trying to hold on to these tr- traditions of, like, the way a family is organized, like – Accept where your family is at. Yeah. 
and how you can best love each other. And they're whatever they, however they're expressing their love. <laughs> it's kind of just like, obviously that's a, a extreme example of it, but like mm-hmm. the things they do to show you that they love you, just like, ignore, like bear witness to them, like mm-hmm. recognize when that love is coming. Um, even if it doesn't always to you, you sometimes you're like, you're being insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just like that kind of how we receive and give and recognize love, especially from parents. I love that. I love that answer. What were you going to say, Seth? Well, in, in relation to like this vein of thematic gleaning, uh, I also really like the way that they approach the relationship as a whole and like showing why that they're both good people, mm. but like that they shouldn't be together. Yeah. You know, because what, what we're seeing here is, is Miranda loves, what's his name? Stu? Daniel? No, oh, Daniel, Daniel. Sorry. Oh. I, I just know him as Mrs. Stalfire. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Robin, I just see him, I just see Robin Williams and Mrs. Stalfire. That's all I see. Uh, but, uh, um, Miranda loves Daniel because she hasn't cultivated the side of herself that she needs to cultivate to be happy with herself. So Daniel just takes on all the fun because that's what she fell in love with. That's what she's lacking in herself. Does that make sense? Mm. So she, she needs Daniel to not be there. She recognizes what she needs in herself from Daniel, but Daniel has consumed it in herself. Yeah. Whereas the opposite is occurring with Daniel. Daniel is in love with Miranda because she provides structure and uh, that feminine security that a mother brings Mm. that he needs to cultivate in himself. So, uh, yes. So I, I, I I love, so I'm still, I'm I'm kind of actually leaning more into what I am gleaning, but so I'm going to try to pull it back. But I love how they decide to separate and it's about them about them growing as people and still loving their kids. And that's okay. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you shouldn't be with somebody that is toxic for you. Mm-hmm. And you can recognize why you love that person, but it's not healthy if you don't allow yourself to, if you don't love yourself yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, in the beginning, that conversation, like where they're also, they, I feel like this is the first time they brought up divorce and they just like decide to do it. Yeah. Like that was, it was like, that's the worst was- scene in the movie because it's like they could pack in an entire relationship uh, yeah. of arguments into one. Yeah. One but I think he, you do see like something that happens and, and hopefully it doesn't happen as often now, but I think especially like in that time, um, like he's like talking about how she's like too into her job and too focused on that. And like, that's making her too um, rigid and structured. And um, hearing that I was like, well, she has to be because it doesn't seem like your job's making that much. You just walk out of jobs cause you feel like it. So their relationship was not, um, they were both kind of, especially her, I think like she was like, I would love to be more fun, but if I do that, we're going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's partly cause she just didn't trust that he would step up to the plate, but I think it's fair to, for her to, to feel like he wouldn't. Um, 
then later he did. But yeah, I just, that's always a big, uh, I don't know, red flag for me when men are like, you're not fun anymore. And I'm always like, well, like there's a lot going on and women are juggling most of it. And if they're like, if they only focus on being fun, then you're like, safe bubble, your safe world that she is structured is going to fall apart. And then you're going to be mad about that. Mm -hmm. So I, it's to that point and, and it kind of like Seth, like that, that idea of like structure and, and expression and all that kind of stuff, like also kind of leads into what my theme clean is, but to, to stay on track with, with in this realm here, this, they don't communicate well with each other. Oh no. Like, like there's that scene where she talks, she's talked where Miranda's talking to Mrs. Doubtfire and she's like, look, like I, I would get so upset because I thought I was able to express, you know, myself and be fun and be loose and like express my fun side. And I would just get, get completely overwhelmed by him. Mm-hmm. And, and that hurt me. That hurt me mm-hmm. a lot and it hurt that he didn't, couldn't see it and acknowledge it. And she's like, and I would lie awake at night and cry myself to sleep. And he never even knew. And mm. like, and that's so sad and so tough to hear that like, like she was in so much pain emotionally. Mm. And so, and just so, and just a very not, not healthy place for herself. But also yeah. she never expressed that to him. And, and when, when he says that, he's like, well, did you ever tell him? Mm-hmm. And she says, um, he was never good at serious conversations. And I'm like, that, I'm sure that's true. A lot of people aren't good at serious conversations, but that's not fair to him either. Yeah, that's true. It's not fair yeah. that you didn't trust him to be able to have a real conversation with you. Yeah. Sarah, he, Sarah was mad at the mom the whole time. She was like outraged. At, if it's she, so hard not to be mad at Robin Williams. Yeah. But I, I, was, I get I get what Miranda's going through. Yeah. How can you be mad at her? Wait, why? Why Miranda's kind of stringent. Yeah, she, like like Sarah was like, she's such a bitch. Like just the whole time, Sarah. <laughs> no, no, I disagree, with Sarah. But I disagree. Well, what what her argument was uh, before, like she agrees that the doubt fire, like craziness right but her argument is is he's clearly an amazing father like and the fact is he partner sorry but that has nothing to do with being like he wasn't a good partner to her but he was an amazing father to the kids and so like the fact that she was the fact that she was holding her kids from him and there was clear solutions is what is what made it to be that she was upset to to okay uh just to 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 interject here on that that wasn't necessarily her decision yeah that's what i said that's what i said is the court's decision i say the way family courts work it does not like well this is what i want like parents don't get to decide that the courts get to decide that and both parents have to abide um yeah he was unemployed and right yeah yeah that's just not she wasn't holding her kids hostage she was she was fine. She was following the ruling of the court. And Sarah said, "She's like, it's ha- it's just really hard to see Robin Williams as a bad guy, and like, and he's not a bad guy. He's just in the wrong. And the way the way that the film's frames like immediately as soon as as uh, Daniel's out of the picture, Stu shows up and he's like dreamy and like 
it's hard to hate, not hate Stu because it's like the guy that's stealing Robin Williams's girl, you know. And and uh, Christopher Columbus himself said how important it was for Stu to Stu's not a bad guy. No, he's not a bad guy. He even though like he's kind of been like a playboy his whole life and like said he would never settle down and like but like he even says it himself. He's like, I am in love with this woman. I think she's amazing. I am in love with her family. Like, I think her family is amazing. Like, I said I would never have kids, but I've fallen in love with this family. And, like, if you, this movie was told from Stu's perspective, it's almost a horror movie. <laughs> She's so mean to him. The passive aggressiveness that he shows towards that, Stu is horrible. That's something I didn't pick up on when I was a kid. Me neither. Like how much passive aggression Miss Doubtfire has and, like, and like how negative she can be. Yes. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah, and so, and so just to go back, like this movie, I think is like a break. There's such a breakdown in communication here, and not having trust in the other partner. And like, I think yes, the movie boils a whole a whole divorce proceeding down into one scene. And but I, I think later in the movie they get to the point where it's like we fought for uh, for years. We've been fighting like this for years, and and even the kids are like, I've never seen my mom this happy. Like mm-hmm. I've. I've They've been unhappy for a long, long time. And and just because we saw one big fight, there's been so many tiny, tiny fights and, and even other big fights that we didn't get to see. This is just the straw that broke the camel's back. We got to see that moment. And so it just seems fast for us because the movie's like, we have to get to the get to the funny part. Because yeah. this is the this is the family drama part that like sets up why it's funny. Mm-hmm. Um but but yeah, there's just she if she truly, because I don't think he realized where she was at, like w- emotionally. I think he honestly thought they would get through it, and he could just fun him, you know, fun his way back into her heart, and eventually she would just realize that oh no, he's great. Um, she didn't know. He didn't know. Because that's didn't he said or she said that that was the part of him that she first like fell in love with mm-hmm. and was really attracted to. And I think that's a good commentary on, yes, I, I think a lot of the time we fall into this trap of when a relationship is going South, trying to recapture whatever the thing was that initially was like the seed of that attraction. But in reality, I think, I don't know anything, but I think maybe it's more you have to recognize where your partner is now mm-hmm. and who they are now and the parts that they had before, but also like really see them for who they are and not be afraid to be like, I'm a, I'm a different person and here it is. And if you don't like it, then we'll, we'll have to talk about that. But I think that he definitely probably was like, well, she loves that I'm fun. So I just have to keep being fun. Mm-hmm. And, and, that's and I mean, well, you know, something that like a lot of people talk about in this country is like the rate of divorce. Right. And like, Marriage is – I'm not married. I've never been married, so maybe I can't speak, speak to this. But from what I understand from people who have been married and from people who have been divorced, yeah, like you, like you said, Megan, people grow and change. And so like if a relationship or a marriage is going to last, it's not that you necessarily have to grow together. Like you can each do your own growth. You have to be able to recognize the growth and change in the other person and 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 interrogate like, is this still a person I want to be with? And is this still a person that I that that works that we we're work together? Because like a marriage is not just like about just like love. A lot of it is about it, love. But it also, like you said, it's a partnership. A marriage is a partnership. It's a it's a 
it's a team, it's a family, it's a, a working relationship. And it doesn't, and throughout that relationship, people change. And so you have to adapt to the person as they're changing in real time. Yeah. Which is hard. And that's why I think a lot of marriages don't last. Because yeah. like you said, they're trying to love the person they fell in love with five, six, ten years ago. And that's not the person that this person is now. And not giving them a chance. That's so interesting that I do this sometimes in friendships. I catch myself doing this. People I've been friends with for years and years, like since we were some since we were kids, some since we were in college. And I'll find myself kind of like like preparing myself for a certain response or reaction from them that isn't fair anymore. I'm like, well, they're going to probably be like passive aggressive or whatever because they've been that way in the past. And then they come back and are, you know, the opposite of they're like so kind. And I don't know. I think I have found myself definitely projecting past their past character traits on them now. And that's not giving them enough credit. It's super not fair to them. It's easy to do because maybe you've been burned before by that person. So you're like, well, I better gear up for this response. But giving them credit for where they are now is way I think the other person appreciates it when somebody can see how much growth they've done and then you can appreciate it and, and benefit from that growth. And I catch myself doing that in friendships a lot and I hate it when I do it. I'm like, that's so not fair to them. Mm -hmm. That's where my kind of theme glean comes in. Uh, so like personal growth, I think this movie is, uh, we've talked about personal growth on here before. Um, but I think it's a, I think it's about the, the things that we have in ourselves that we don't know how to access. And sometimes it takes putting on a mask to be able to change your perspective, to be able to access it. And mm -hmm. this is where it gets, it gets hairy because Harry has funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> This is where it gets hairy because it's like we 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 don't I, I like I totally recognize uh, trans people and like and like there is a side of this conversation that is very complex, um, but I it, it's more of a recognition of them, and but it's like I don't I don't identify as a woman, right? Um, but I definitely have femininity and feminine sides to me that are not permitted by my physical construct, you know, uh, but, and that has nothing to do with me. That has to do with society's view of my physical construct and what they project onto me and expect from me. And I can't be, uh, I cannot be not affected by that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Wow. I can't believe I said that sentence and it made sense. Uh, so, well, I think a, a lot of people will say like gender is, is layered, right? Yeah. Like yeah. the, like there are so many layers on, like you said, like there are layers that society puts on you as, of your gender. There are layers yeah. that you put on yourself. There are layers that people around you put on you, your social, your and, social gender layers. Yes. And, and it, it all acts upon each other. And it, it it's one of the reasons I think people, people struggle with their with their gender identities and expression so much is because there's so many forces trying to push and pull and tug at certain things about you 
mm-hmm. and it's it's hard for you to figure out what you what feels right to you. Right. And we're Ricky and I, I think, are in a unique position to talk about this because we are actors, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and I think this is the perspective that everyone should start to take on. It's the bridge. It's the bridge uh, between the two sides of this conversation, uh, I think. And that's, and that's that like, we all have many, many sides of ourselves, but it's about who you want to be, you know, and the world doesn't always permit you, give you permission to express yourself. And you should be allowed to access those sides of yourself and performance and theater is one of the ways that, uh, you can and what it teaches you is how to access those sides of yourself um all the world's a stage you know like you're yeah. you're a different person when you're with your mom as to opposed to when you're with your best friend you know you're a different person uh talking to a 90 year old woman than you are uh like at a nightclub you know so like What's that real? Yeah. All real. Like none of them are, I mean, they're real and they're fake, but yeah. Yeah. So I, I have a interesting relationship to this movie because I, I greatly connect with Robin Williams. Um, like I am like him in a lot of ways in this film, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty like, wild guy if you will like i don't have a lot of structure i don't have um i like to have a good time i don't want to take things seriously but there is a side of me that is actually extremely serious and extremely structured and it's connected to probably my feminine side too you know um and so it's strange i like i i I understand needing to put a mask on to be able to experience and feel the things that in myself that I don't normally feel. And I think, you know, I think drag is definitely connected to that. And, it, and that's where, and that the reason I'm being so careful is I don't want to call drag clowning, but it's mm. definitely very, very, close and tangential art forms. I think there are, there are elements that are similar. Yeah. Um, I think obviously the differences between the two are, are what make them different things. Um, and, and the complexities of exploring each of those, those fields is, is complicated, but I think a lot of drag performers would agree that there are similarities between it. I think RuPaul especially would, like, well, yeah. Like, if you if you go back and le- less, it still has these elements like Drag Race, hmm. but in the beginning, like there was a lot of jokes, you know, like it was very pun driven. It still is pun driven, but like there is all a lot a ton of clowning in drag. Hmm. Um, so, but I think what where it evolves is people's motivations you know, are, have shifted and you have to acknowledge that and accept that. Mm-hmm. 
I, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but where I experience this the most is at my job, at my day job. Mm-hmm. And, and I might be using this term wrong, but I think I'm, I'm using it in a way just to illustrate kind of how it feels sometimes. Um, there's almost like a gender expression code switching that happens when I go to work. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I'm not the most masculine, expressive person in the world in general. Um, but especially when I'm at work, as soon as, as soon as the first kid walks into the door, there is a, there is a switch that happens and the, my gender expression becomes much, much different. Uh, obviously it, appropriately so, but it is a, an extremely much more traditionally feminine expression of myself um you know i'm not playing like i think i i want to i want to be clear it's like i'm not trying to play up flamboyancy um i think to for people at home it's not when i say a more feminine expression i'm not talking about flamboyance um it and and again maybe this isn't quite a fair way of expressing like what is a masculine trait and what is a feminine trait and the examination of that yeah traditional yeah as we understand it as a society. Yeah. Um, I become much more nurturing, much more uh, the empathy meter is turned up to like a gazillion. Um, even my even my pitch of voice goes up a little mm-hmm. bit. And I actually noticed this a few years ago because when I was in college, I used to take singing lessons and my vocal range was a little bit lower, was more like true baritone to almost like the upper parts of bass range. And then I started working at my current company that I work at now. I started working there in 2014. After a couple of years of working in that company, I went back to singing lessons and my pitch had gone, my vocal range had skewed upwards mm. because I'd been talking and singing in a higher pitched voice for years mm. without realizing and so my t- my pitch shifted upwards to more of a baritenor, so lower tenor, higher baritone, mm-hmm. which is just without me doing that on purpose. It's just what happened. Yeah. And so there, it, it's and it's also I think one of the reasons why like people at my job are maybe more comfortable with me. I remember one time a woman came in with her two year old, and I was doing my thing, the thing I do with everybody, and. I, about 30 minutes into class, she walks out, takes her child out of the out of the play floor, goes up to my boss and goes, he's weird. Uh, she's like, uh, he's weird. Uh, can you put me in a different class? Because he's weird. And my boss is like, oh, okay, um, sure. Like, and, and put put them into a music class uh, instead. They came out about 10 minutes later and says, that teacher's also weird. You all are weird. I'm, bring, I'm getting my child out of here. And I was like, do you expect us to behave like adults with your two-year-old? Right. Like, what do you – like, how do you expect a 24-year-old man to act like when when I'm interacting with babies? A child. Yeah. Um, like, wh- what do you expect? Do you expect me to behave like a, a normal 24-year-old heterosexual male around right. all these children? No. Like, there has to be – there has to be a fluidity about that, and like a, a and an ex- again a, a change in express in the way you express yourself. That's a more that connects more with 
with the children, I guess. Like, um, this is interesting. Like your masculinity is probably attached to your sexuality. mm -hmm. Right. So like for you personally, I'm not talking about everyone. I'm saying Mm -hmm. Ricky. So like, I think you probably have to remove yourself from your masculinity to not have, not be in a set, have, have access to that sexual side of yourself Mm -hmm. because you're around children. You don't want to. And that's, that's very, very good. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But because you are, you have developed yourself as a adult and your sexuality has been attached to your masculinity. It makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like it makes sense that you have to go to the, to a feminine side in your mind to avoid being at all because you can't there's just like you gotta you gotta you gotta keep that in mind it's you know what i mean people are looking at for anything to be like you're there's something wrong with you you know and and, and to be clear it's not like that was a conscious choice it's not like no, a conscious no. it's like putting away these masculine features and like being more feminine it's just I've worked with young children since I was 16 years old. I did swim lessons as a, as a lifeguard. I was a tutor for, for the public school and I went to college and I was working in, in preschools for three, for three years and, and supplemental preschool programs. And then I, and I moved to Chicago and I got this job at this company, which is also all children under the age of five. So like I've been working with young children for 15 years and this like way of interacting with them has just kind of developed over time and realizing what really connects with them, you know? And, and I honestly, one of the reasons I connect with this movie so much is that's what Robin Williams character does too. You know, he, you know, he talks about like, don't talk down to the kids, like make it educational and fun. I think this for me, if I'm dipping my toe into like what I feel from this movie, it's about like, you both you need expression and structure. Yeah, and because we're talking about like personal growth, right? If you just let a plant grow, it'll grow aimlessly and kind of uh, unevenly, and sometimes it might not grow as well as if you gave it something to grow up and onto, like a fence mm-hmm. or a post or something. It'll grow healthier if it has just something to that it can latch onto, which is that structure. And I think love in particular, love is beautiful and wonderful and, and can be unbridled and, and wild. But love also needs structure. Mm-hmm. Or or else it can be expressed in a way that's really, really unpalatable. Mm-hmm. Um, or or p- p- destructive. Love can be expressed destructively. Yeah. Um, like love is powerful. Love is love is a wonderful emotion. But 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 love... you might might make you dress up as a woman and infiltrate your wife's house. You and know? some of that's okay. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like like a a plant needs structure needs structure to, to grow sometimes. You know, it needs that fence, it needs that post, it needs somewhere that it can cling to so it can fully flourish. And I think Robin Williams's character in his expression of the way he connects with children 
you know, he talks about when he's doing all that dinosaur stuff. He's like, you need education. You need in the information. You need the structure. Mm-hmm. But then within that, like, you're able to go off and really have fun with it and then come back yes. to that structure. So I will I will popcorn this. It's a new term I've, I've, I've heard. Pop- I'll, I'll popcorn this. Uh, and sometimes you need – so sometimes that structure is – literally physical circumstances and sometimes literally physic like body circumstances like you have to put on this mask to create a structure for yourself to let out what you're what you're needing to learn to grow as so like like and that's how i see what drag is. And I also see what clowning is, is you're not putting on a mask to fool people. You're putting on a mask to let a part of yourself out. And, uh, I think that's very important to be able to be allowed to do because otherwise we just won't grow as people, you know, uh, it's, let, let me, let me boil it down to a business bullshit you put on a suit when you go to work you asshole you know like and that's changing your persona i was gonna say to bring it back to what you were saying about being actors and like all the world's a stage or whatever but when um i'm very very interested in costume design and film and a lot of um just like a lot of actors from interviews and i'm sure you guys would you know either agree or disagree that the costume helps like once you get in the you're saying the costume helps the mask or whatever that is part of the character percent, and exploring that person and the way they move and the way they like and the same is true of get like i again love clothes i love clothes probably too much and there are days there are days when and this is a way obviously this is not the same thing as drag but there are days when i'm like i feel like i want to present like a more masculine energy so i put on like i don't know not a pantsuit, but like a cooler version of a pantsuit. And there are days when I feel very feminine and I'm like, that's the kind of like, I need my, if my outfit doesn't match the way I feel that day, my whole day is off. Yeah. So like, that's what, I'm not an actor, but to me it sounds that way because at the end of the day, just existing as a person is performative. Gender is performative. Every single day and every interaction, these things are, we choose how they're expressed. We can't choose how they're perceived, but it is performative and getting dressed is part of that. And then obviously drag is like a very, not very extreme, but it's like a more, there's, it's a little more like fun and you get to be more expressive, more expressive. Right. Yeah. I think there's something really interesting in what you're saying here. And, and that really applies to this movie a lot because they, uh, you know, were developing the look for the Mrs. Doubtfire character. And what they would do is they would set up monitors for for Robin Williams and he would come in in costume and be able to see himself and start to work through building the character and like seeing the character helped him find who this person was and 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 to Seth's point like this idea of like these masks the I think acting wise putting on a mask like I said allows you to access and express parts of yourself parts of yourself that you either are afraid to or can't but also i think sometimes putting on that co- dress that costume that outfit and seeing yourself in it 
opens up a door that you didn't even know was there. Yeah. Right? Like yes. human yeah. beings aren't always the most aware of themselves and like what is locked away in certain areas emotionally and mentally and things like that. And so I think seeing yourself in a particular way, in a way that's vastly different from who you are, can open a door that you didn't even know was there. And it teaches yeah. you about other people, you know, mm-hmm. like the, one of the weirdest days of my life was I went to the comedy store addressed as a, a lady clown and uh, I went all out. I mean, I, I got the heels in, in the closet. Like I got, uh, I went and got like significant heels. I wore tights. I wore, uh, and instead of a skirt, I just wore a really long shirt, like a really long white shirt as a dress, a bow tie, had lipstick, a nose, and I had a pixie cut, you know, at the time. So like, you know, a short haired pixie girl was kind of what I was going for. And with a red nose, you know, um, and that showing up to the comedy store in this outfit. Right. And like, I'm very method. Ricky has seen it, you know, like I, I completely commit to whatever I'm doing. And so it was, and it's, it's all related to emotion. Like it's all related to how I feel as the character and whoa, let me tell you, it was like the most exposed and vulnerable I've ever felt in my life. Like it was like, I could, and I, I could see the men that were like into it and like, Mm. I got hit on and like, it, it, like all eyes were on me Yeah, and it was not, and I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like I had power. I definitely felt vulnerable. Like I felt like imposed upon, you know? Mm. And so it was a learning, it was a, a, a really powerful learning experience to put myself in that position. Um, yeah. 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 I think, yeah, the way people react to how we present ourselves does tell you a lot about them. Mm. And I do back to what you were saying, Ricky, it's, that's always fascinating to me. Because, like I said, that relationship with how I feel and what I'm wearing that day, sometimes I'm always fascinated by like which comes first because they inform each other so much. It's not like I always am like, I know exactly how I feel. Sometimes it's more like, what do I want to, what do I want to feel today? Or what am I like, what are, I don't know, sometimes I watch something or even like, you know, the weather, like it, it's all, it's external and internal Mm. and it all I don't know which comes first mm. or if it's like, um, I don't know, a blend of everything. Yeah. It, expression of self, self, self-expression is such a, a complicated thing for me. I don't, I don't know. I, I haven't figured out exactly how I express myself in my appearance if that makes sense. I, or I guess maybe Seth would say something like my lack of emphasis on what I dress like and what I, how I present myself physically is an expression and it is an expression in itself. Yeah. I would um, say 
Yeah, that's also, that's the thing. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't want to diagnose, you know, I don't want to diagnose, but I think it's like related to your fear of expressing yourself, Rick. Mm-hmm. Like you want the, you've, you've, you, I think you choose clothes that are comfortable because mm-hmm. it, you're, you feel safe in them. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. That's also a valid. See, when I see people dress like that, I'm like, okay, well that's what they prioritize. And that's cool too. You know what I mean? They're, I don't know. But I think it, if you want to, I think it's also connected to you're afraid of making clothing choices that a you would be uncomfortable physically in, or b you would feel silly in. Well, you know what's funny is I used to care even less about what I wore um, until I lived with my sister, my oldest sister, and you know I didn't know anything about fashion or clothes. I, I mean, my fashion style has been the same since I've been a child. It's T-shirts, gym shorts, baseball caps, hoodies. But even even now, I'm way more. I think way more about clashing colors because mm. I used to not even know what that meant, <laughs> and I would just wear whatever. I would just yeah. grab a shirt, grab some shorts, and that's what I was wearing. And then one day, my sister was like, "What are you wearing? Those colors do not go together at all. Like you are completely." A, a freaking Picasso of colors right now. And I was like, I don't understand what you mean. She's like, those colors do not go together. <laughs> it's like, ah, uh-huh, okay. Yeah. I like sometimes I'd be monochromatic. I'd be, I remember going, I used to go to, <laughs> I used to go to Catholic school and we had a, a uniform and like, yeah. obviously in, in the only colors you could wear were white, dark blue or Navy blue shirts and you could either wear navy blue pants or khakis. That's all you could wear. Mm-hmm. And more than one occasion, I went to school wearing navy blue pants and a navy blue shirt. That's a look. I, I didn't do it on purpose. I just grabbed whatever I grabbed. Sometimes that's a look. <laughs> and everyone was like, what? My, again, my sister was like, you can't do that. You can't. You can't. Be walk. You can't have your pants and your shirt be the exactly the same color. I think this is such, and I'm gonna. I know this isn't exactly where we started, but I really like talking about this. Um, I think like this like postmodern approach to like. I feel like when we were growing up, there was you know what not to wear and all these shows that were like it has to like look good and your silhouette should flatter you. And in the popular approach to fashion, I think that was you know the everyday talk about it that was the emphasis and the more I you know the older I get and the more I learn about the actual like the history of clothes and fashion and what they're there for and I think the more that permeates our pop culture like the more I love this new approach where it's like it doesn't matter it honestly doesn't even matter if it looks good like it doesn't matter if it looks good and I'm putting quotes around it or fits you super well or whatever as long as you feel good in it then you should be as long as it makes you feel either more like yourself or who you want to be or like how you I don't know. Like, I really, really like that approach to it a little bit more. So now, like, I will wear a monochromatic outfit if I'm like, you know what I'm feeling? One color. <laughs> All day. Well, so I, I'll tell my sister that she can shove it then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love what Sometimes I match my lipstick to my outfit, and it's a good time. Mm. I th- yeah. I deliberately chose my outfit today, even though it's sluggish. Chicago. It's my Chicago hat. And it's my Margo, nice. my Margo hoodie, and it's it's a, it's representative of where I'm at in my life, where I've been, and where I'm at, and like I this is 
this made me feel good about myself today. Yeah. Hell yeah. And and just to kind of talk about, yeah, this it's a self expression. It's so complicated because, like Megan, you were saying, the things that cause us to express ourselves and 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 how we're expressing it, even on a moment to moment basis. There are so many factors. There's external factors. There's internal factors. There's hormone levels. There's chemical signals in the brain. There's what you ate last night and how. Like all these things feed into the way that you choose to or the way that you subconsciously are expressing yourself. And again, I just don't think human beings are quite always aware of you are not themselves. You are not you. You are only what you are. Exactly. And, and what, I think, what did you say, Megan? Are you quoting yourself? Oh, yes. I am quoting myself. Yeah. That's his quoting his, himself voice. That's the mm-hmm. voice he takes when he's saying something that he said to me before. <laughs> but I think I, mean, I think it's ap- it's apt. I think it's apropos um, to mm-hmm. this. And in this movie particularly, I think what I saw and what I most connected with was somebody f- – gaining access to a part of themselves that they didn't even know they were capable of. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't think he was trying to avoid being a responsible person. I think mm-hmm. he just Couldn't. didn't know he, he didn't was know capable how. of it. Yeah. He just didn't know he was capable. He had to put the structure. He had to create the structure for himself to find. Right. It. He, he weirdly enough, he had to confine himself to spe- to something so specific yeah. to unlock a very important and universally useful part of himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I, and, I relate to a lot. Yeah. And, and like, like you said, as actors, we do that with every new role that we, that we take on. We, someone's like, you're going to be this person now. Well, this person's not you, but it is you, right? Like the whole balance of acting is how do you infuse yourself? Cause like the, the thing about acting that you have to learn is, you're the only person that can play that character the way you would play that character, right? You the only you're the only person that can be you as that character, right? Everybody else would do it differently. Cuz that's who they are. You can only deliver who you are. But like but also you're playing a character. So like there's this weird layer of like not you but you, right? Not you but you. It's you but it's not you. And like this idea of putting you into a whole different life of circumstances of this person is a different person, but it it's me if this was my life. Mm-hmm. And it does open up an empathy and, an, and a way of accessing feelings and emotions and understanding that you may not have had before. Which, yeah. which you know, they it's one of the reasons why they say, talk about how method acting is kind of a dangerous form of acting, right? Because, like, method acting is you convincing yourself that you are not yourself. Yeah. And, like, literally, literally, you are rewiring the synapses in your brain to operate differently. Yeah. And that's why it's it's so dangerous. Like, that's why people are, like, a lot of people, like, psychologists are like, method acting can be very harmful it's to a person. dissociation from, yes. from yourself. Like, you're literally trying to forget that you are you a are. different person. Yeah. And, I mean... And, and here's the thing is like a lot of method actors and like myself included, the reason that we do that is because we're afraid of ourselves or we don't like ourselves. So we try to take on another person and forget who we are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's been my journey 
you know, like, and that's maybe why I haven't pursued that type of acting in a really long time is because I'm, I'm, I'm finding how to love myself, you know, because it scared me. It, it did scare me. Like I could just lose myself, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so, and I think that makes so much sense that Daniel is an act is an actor in this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He is somebody that like, he has the skills to, to embody a different person. And in doing so, unlocks unlocks something in himself and for the better like was it maybe drastic and unhinged absolutely for sure but like overall sometimes you need to go really 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 far in order to get to that door that you didn't even know existed yeah Um, yeah. And that's scary. Like you said, Seth, that's really, that's really scary to think that there's parts of you that you don't even know are there. And like, at what point, like what set of checklist, like what boxes need to be checked for that door to unlock? I mean, yeah. Like I, I, you were there, Rick, like you saw a similar me go through something very similar to this, but not to the extreme with the discovery of clowning. You know, like I was not okay. You know, <laughs> like I was in a bad, bad place and I decided to put on a clown nose and, and it was so I could find the joy of performance again, you know, and find the parts of myself that like, I was basically being told, no, you're not allowed to perform. And I was like, fuck that. I can do it on the street. And you know, I took on this persona, but that persona was a clown, which people can't be afraid of clowns. You know? That and and Megan, for more perspective, that was like the summer of like the attack of the clown summer. Complete coincidence. Every- Complete coincidence, though. That's what's garbage. That's what's garbage. Yeah. So he started clowning before all that hap- was happening, and then it like right when he started doing it was when all that stuff started going down. Suspicious timing, Seth. It is suspicious timing, but if you saw the clown I became, you would uh-huh. you would know that it was not at all. Tainted. I can show you. I actually have a video. I can show you. Uh, like yeah. the clowns that were doing that were scary clowns. I'm I am a little afraid of clowns. I feel like mm-hmm. very common phobia. Col- yeah, colrophobia. Yeah. It's not paralyzing, but I don't love being around. If they're on stilts, absolutely not. Never. <laughs> <laughs> But a regular clown, I just prefer not to be there. Maybe that's just their self-expression. They want to they want to express themselves as this big. If they want to be on stilts, that's fine. But I am very scared of people on stilts. Just, Fun fact. Just not near me. <laughs> your, your, that's clown, your clown evolves just like you do. Um, but at that time in my life, the clown that needed to be expressed was my childish, my childish joy. You know, because mm-hmm. I had pushed that down so much because. I felt like I wasn't allowed to perform. And as soon as I put the nose on, this kid came out, you know, like this five, six year old joyful person that loves everybody and wants to make everybody happy came out. And what's it was really, honestly, it was a, it was a very, like I got to hang out with Seth and while he was clowning a few times 
it was really, really fun to watch. And like the interactions that he would have with people um, in the clown, in the clown persona was very interesting to watch. And, and I think really cathartic for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as weird as it might sound to people on the outside, I think it was actually kind of a very beautiful and touching thing. Um, and that's why I'm so passionate about this drag situation is because like I told, I understand the need to express yourself by wearing a mask and yeah. And also, yeah. And it carries that this particular thing, the drag thing carries with it so many implications about even though it's not always, you know, drag performers are not always, like I said, they don't identify as transgender or they don't identify as gay or anything like that. But in a lot of the mindset of the people making these laws, those things are related. Yeah. So the implications become really fucked um, on top of it just being like a, a prohibition of self-expression. It becomes just. Well, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's a healthy expression of that, of a lot of those feelings and, and this way that that community has been oppressed so much and like, right. And it's like, okay, well then like, let me do this thing that's completely harmless to anybody. And is just fun and and can be entertaining, but can also just be very freeing and brings joy, brings all the people. Right. And and it's just an expression that doesn't hurt anybody. And now people in the government like, no, that hurts people. And it's like, no, you're, you're just, you said the way that we were behaving was, was hurting people. So we found a, a, a harmless, and fun way to do things like that. And now you're saying you're just, it's like, it's so clear that you just want to repress anybody that's in this community. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether you think it's harmful or not. You just hate that we exist. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the most transparent and horrible thing about all that. It's like, it's genuinely embarrassing to be like here right now. It's really upsetting. Yeah. I'm, I'm in LA where everything's awesome. (sighs) It's not. <laughs> We're trying to ban Walgreens out here. For, Walgreens has made some strange and fucked up decisions. No, that's uh, it's it's bizarre uh, for a reason that like I think is really messed up. Walgreens is buckling to to some horrible horrible things. So mm-hmm. it's weird. We live in a weird time right now. This movie it was made in a completely different time, but I think it has some elements that are really, really, really. I think this is the perfect movie to watch yeah. right now because because it's it will force you to talk about all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has a strange poignancy at yeah. this at this current like what even more so maybe than it did back then. Um, and you get to watch Robin Williams and Robin Williams, guys. Yeah, my heart melts. It's so it's so painful. I, I was I was standing out front outside of IO Theater when I found out, and I just it, I just I, I remember the exact moment. It was pretty. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, I remember where I was. But you know, I'm glad we, we this is our first Robin Williams movie. I think it is. Mm-hmm. Can you believe that? That's I wild. Know. I know. I'm surprised. But, uh, I'm glad we got to it today. And again, it's one of my favorites. I'm glad we got to did you, uh, express ourselves today. Did you hear him? There, there's a lot of actually like meta commentary in this movie. Uh, did you hear him uh, quote himself? Yeah. In uh, uh, Dead Poet Society? Yeah. I thought that was oh, really I cool. That was really yeah. Cool. There's some good stuff going on in here. Um, but yeah, thank you both for expressing yourselves with me today um, for, while we talked about Mrs. Doubtfire. So uh, I think... 
Oh, you got one more thing to say? I, I got one more thing to say about that meta commentary. Okay. And, and it's it's a because I it's a tiny tiny thing, but tiny, we, tiny we, thing. we said you know how this is brushing up against like Robin Williams' real life, you know, kind of because he's from San he lived in San Francisco. Like it's like very very close, uh-huh. and uh, that scene with the judge where the judge is like, I see a performer. Mm-hmm. I see a very talented actor putting on a show, putting on a show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like a genuine expression. And like the shot of Robin Williams face hearing that line, I think is a summation of his pain because mm-hmm. he, he knows he can perform. I mean, that's what made his passing so tragic. Yeah. It was like, he seems, I mean, everybody talks about him in this, like, so, such a joyous yeah. and warm way. But his authenticity yeah. is very, is probably very, very sad. And like, how do you express, how did, he doesn't know how to express it. And so like that, that what's that? I said that part of it, because I also, I, I just don't. It's. It was very sad. He was definitely dealing with stuff, but he was also a really joyful person, authentically too. Well, and I just like those things don't. Yeah, don't have to be mutually exclusive. Like, like. Right. I don't know. I I don't personally struggle with with clinical depression, so I I don't know if I can necessarily speak to this. But from what I understand, and from what friends who I have who have talked about this, like you can experience and feel and express joy even though you're depressed it's not necessarily the same thing. Like it's not a, it's not a, it's not an every waking second of your life type of type of thing, but it's something that's like always kind of running in the background. Um, And and a lot of times people, you know, I mean, Seth, you've talked about this. Like sometimes when you're the happiest is also when you experience your, your biggest lows. Like, like I feel like people in depression, it can experience really, really big, bursts of joy and, and love and excitement and, and happiness, but then they just, they crash hard back into the depression afterwards. Yeah. And, and it's one of the reasons I think like we talk about comedians being so sad a lot of times is they express themselves, a lot of parts of themselves very joyously, but then come crashing really hard into the darker sides of themselves that they don't allow themselves to, to express or to share because they I mean I struggled with this growing up a lot of like not thinking anybody wants to hear about when I'm not feeling good right Um, because you know I've always been this very funny goofy positive kind of kid especially growing up I was that that kid but like whenever I was not having a good day or, you know, I was picked on a lot as a kid, especially being like a chubby guy. I was, I was kind of, and I've talked about this before being, being a person of color in a white community, you get singled out a lot. It's just easier mm-hmm. to single you out. Cause there's so many more things that are different about you, non-traditional. And so, you know, there are days where it's just like, this is just a lot to handle, but I don't feel like I can express to anybody because I don't think it, anybody wants to hear the flat, funny guy say he's sad. Mm. And so that was always really hard. Mm. So I, I get that, you know, 
about Robin Williams. It's you're not sure anybody wants to hear someone that brings so much joy. No one wants to hear that person be like, I'm extremely sad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think I think it's even more than that. And like, I, I don't want I, I feel bad that we're continuing from this, but I don't think Robin Williams knows how to express himself authentically like it like he he knows he's always performing and like that's that's from someone that that has that problem like that's why i can recognize it is is performance is completely how he moves through the world and i think that's him in this film acknowledging that that's the meta commentary mm -hmm. is uh robin williams knows that this is actually his problem is that he's always performing. Yeah. It's tough. Uh, everybody take care of yourselves mentally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, communicate with others. Uh, I think that's important. Uh, I mean, this movie has a lot of elements of that too, of if you don't communicate your needs emotionally and mentally, you can't expect anybody else to give you what you need. So, yeah. um, express yourselves the way you want to, but also express yourselves the way you need to. Yes. And yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound like that's how I've, I've done a lot of work to try to not do that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. And to acknowledge, there are also sometimes a lot of barriers to expressing yourself the way you want and need to, whether it's like the people in your life won't listen or like depression can make it so that you feel like you can't. Yeah. Um, so also just, you know, therapy's fun. Yeah, it is the best. And yes. Find, find your tribe and find who you can do that with. If it's just, yeah. even if it's just one person, you know, find the per people that can do that for you. The more, you know, I, yes. boom, boom, boom. I think that's a great place to end, <laughs> uh, our conversation about Mrs. Doubtfire. Everybody take care of yourselves out there. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's wrap it up here. Let's talk about what we're going to be doing next. What's next? Uh, it's my pick uh, for what's next. Uh, and so I would like to um, – there's a movie coming out this weekend. Uh, it's a part of a franchise. Uh and I would like to go back to the beginning. So the new John Wick movie is coming out this ah, week. Okay. And and Lance Reddick just passed away as well. And so um, one of the actors from those films. Uh, and so as a, both a way of, you know, paying homage to his body of work, but also, you know, what a great franchise and what a great start to that franchise. Um, I would love to for us to uh, talk about John Wick. Uh, the first John Wick uh, from 2014. Bit of so, a shift. Bit of a shift. Yeah. Well, you know what? <laughs> you, I like to keep folks at home on their toes. We have been doing a lot of sentimental movies lately. A lot of like really like these like really sentimental explorations well, lately. It's bridged with sentimentality. That's for sure. But yeah, we, we'll yeah. talk about that next week. That's why. Yeah. This is completely different expression of yourself. Uh, so yes, if you want to watch John Wick along with us again, but this is the first John Wick uh, from 2014, uh, you can watch it on uh, FUBU TV, Hulu, Sling TV, and Peacock with a subscription, or you can rent, uh, pay to rent it on YouTube, Google Play Movies and TV, Apple TV, Redbox, Vudu, and Amazon Prime. So that is what we're going to be doing next week, John Wick. Uh, so uh, 
Seth and Megan, thank you so much for being with me today. Go ahead and shout yourselves out. Seth, why don't you go first? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at the Birdie Word. That's T H E B I R D Y W O R D. I'm also on Instagram at Seth Adam Crow. That's S E T H A D A M C R O W E. Always with an E, uh, Crow. That is. And you can find me at SethCrow.com. Awesome. Megan, shout yourself out. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Megan underscore Jane 61. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N. Stop laughing, Ricky. I have to make sure I get it right. (laughs) The underscore could be anywhere. (laughs) It's just really funny to me because like, you keep acknowledging it now because I'm watching you as you look it up and then you look at me to see if I'm watching you look it up. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's making me laugh even more than the fact that you have to look it up now is that you're like embarrassed it's, that I'm watching you do it. <laughs> and now it's tradition and I don't want to stop doing it's it. It's fine. So. Uh, and you can find me at Ricardo Boydias on TikTok and Instagram. That is the way my name is spelled all one world. And you can find this podcast, the What's About Film podcast, on several different platforms. You can find us on Twitter at WeAtPodWhat, on Instagram at What's About Podcast, and, and TikTok at What's About Pod. Uh, we post new episodes every Friday morning. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts. You can catch us on Spotify. And now you can even catch us on Amazon Music. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So even more ways to to see us. So uh, please join us. Join the conversation. Follow us on any of those social medias. Let us know what movies you want to see us do, what movies you want to hear us talk about, what, uh, what you think about the different movies and the different topics that we've discussed. We would love to uh, loop you all into the conversation. So. Thank you all so much for listening, and thank you to my two co-hosts for being here today. We will see you again next time. Bye. Bye. Adios.